Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries. Um As I sat down to re- edit this episode uh, tonight, I received the news that Sean Engel, a uh, fellow member of the Two True Freaks podcasting network, host of Just One of the Guys, um, among other shows, uh, had, had passed away. Um, the Two True Freaks family is, is very stunned and, and, and reeling from this. Um, and uh, I wanted to pass along my condolences and my thoughts to his family and friends and and fellow podcasters and dedicate this show uh, to his memory. Um, We'll miss you, Sean. Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics Part 14 Public service announcements. Welcome to episode 14 of the podcast miniseries 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and the purpose of this miniseries is to highlight comic book genres that DC has published in its 80-year history, as well as stories that aren't often found in your typical top 10 list. Last time around, I looked at the fantasy genre. This time I'm going in a completely different direction. I'm taking a look at public service announcement or awareness comics. And I don't mean storylines that feature DC Comics characters taking on tough issues in their regular titles. I mean comics that were specially produced to be sold or given away to raise awareness for a cause. Of a little history of the genre as well as two selections from the 1980s and the 1990s for you. But first, I have emails. I've got two. Both of them are from Gene Hendricks, who is the host of a number of podcasts, including the Hammer Podcast. And he's writing in about both the licensed properties and the Star Trek episodes. His first email is Tom. Another great show on the licensed properties. I really liked how you worked in the guest stars, even if it was a bit noisy when you and Stella were recording. I've read the Scooby-Doo team-up featuring the Super Friends, which was really good. I'm really looking forward to the next one since Star Trek is one of my all-time favorite properties and I love the DC series, Gene. And then his second is, Tom, good job with the Star Trek episode. One of the things I liked about the first DC series was how it really worked with the movies. They took pains to tell new stories while lining everything up while lining everything back up for the next film. For example, in the issue you read, the Enterprise crew minus Spock was on the Excelsior. This was between Star Trek 3 and Star Trek 4. They eventually had to be put put everyone back on Vulcan. So the incident with the Surak undid the mental restructuring done to Spock post 3, and Kirk's enemies ousted him from command of the Excelsior. As they were carrying around the Bird of Prey in the shuttle bay, the command crew took that and fled back to Vulcan in order to get Spock help. So if you watch the movies, the crew has been on Vulcan for the whole time, but if you read the comics, they had some adventures, including running into the movie timeline Mirror Universe crew, 
but that ended back up where they started. The second series didn't work for me as well, since they were forced to drop any original characters, so the stories were a little too focused on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, who couldn't be put in any danger they couldn't get out of. It was alright, and I really liked the trial of James T. Kirk's storyline, but most of it fell a bit flat for me. Gene, I'm glad you liked both episodes. Your emails make me want to go back and hunt down some of those old Star Trek issues. Uh, When I have time to read and collect them, that is... I do have the Who's Who in Star Trek series. I will say that it does sound like that first series was very close in style to something like Star Wars over in Marvel, which was wrapping up around the time that this Star Trek series started at DC. And I'm also glad you liked it because while I feel I covered a really fun issue to cover, I also feel like I should have done more with that episode. Uh, Like I gave the topic short shrift. Perhaps in a future episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, I'll, I'll tackle some Star Trek stuff. Anyway, thank you for listening and writing in. And that's it. The email bag is completely empty, so if you would like to write in, please feel free to email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. I'm going to take a quick break now, and when I get back, I'm going to talk a little bit about DC's histories with PSAs. Are you a geek looking for love? Do you long to find discussion on that special comic, TV episode, movie, or toy that's just right for you? Then why not try Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. (laughs) And here's the thing. You're talking about, now think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place booked? Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it, but I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. I thought, you know. Sorry about that. Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in... I don't know. We don't a know. A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With, with a, belt. a belt. That's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things. He, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and... Action figures. I actually had all the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really, literally did collect them all, you know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that, but... Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. WGRZ TV2 Buffalo. This is the Kids Escaping Drugs Telethon with Barry Lillis. 
drugs. How come? They think they're being cool, but they're not. It's weird. They don't know that they're being unfair to themselves. It's the cool dark world out there, but you gotta stay cool, and you better beware. Turning on to dope won't help you Find yourself with the chance And you're thinking you can handle it And come out ahead Don't go fooling yourself It won't help you through So DC has been doing factual-based comics for decades, starting with Real Fact Comics back in 1946, a book that, according to Les Daniels, was guided by Jack Schiff, the Golden Age Batman editor, who apparently loved his job informing the youth of America through the pages of comics. This, of course, came after a few years when comics were at the forefront of promoting the war effort to children, but that didn't mean it was successful. Although it tried valiantly to become the comic book equivalent of a general interest magazine for adults, Daniels notes, real fact didn't enjoy any success. Schiff says DC was regularly selling 80% of the roughly 250,000 copies printed, which would have been fine at a later time, but wasn't much during the post-war boom in comic book sales. The last issue of Real Fact ran in 1949. Schiff, however, would take this idea and run with it in a series of single-page public service announcements. He tells Les Daniels, I I worked with the National Social Welfare Assembly. They came from different organizations, and we used to meet regularly to discuss ideas for what would be a good page the kids would be interested in, how to study, how to do chores around the house, things like that. And we had that page every month in 30 magazines. One of them is reprinted, uh, by the way, in Daniel's DC Comics 60 Years of the World's Greatest Comic Book Heroes. It's a Superboy PSA called Know Your Country. In it, two kids are talking about how they have been invited to the house of a girl named Sigrid for dinner. And her mother is going to make something called Cotbuller. They both say they're not going. No foreign-sounding food for them. Clark, who is behind them, says that Sigrid is the new Scandinavian girl, and nobody pays attention to her because she's a little different. He changes into Superboy and tells those kids that he's the guest of honor at Sigrid's house. The other kids, seeing that Superboy is going to be there, decide to go, and when they're eating dinner, they rave and rave about the food. Superboy then ends with a speech for the kids at the table and the kids at home. You can never tell what you're missing if you don't try. If you want to know your country, learn about the differences among people in food, language, customs, and dress, and respect those differences. Because no single land, race, or nationality can claim this country as its own. America is a blend of cultures from many, many lands. Never forget that. On the surface, it reads a little bit of a pat, even hokey message. But considering it was 1955 and the audience for Superboy was probably pretty young, this is a very appropriate and straightforward comic. Plus, this isn't something that's very easy to do. When PSAs are put together, they're meant to send a message, but also have to be effective. And that can be hard to do when your audience is kids, especially when they're getting a little older. I mean, remember this one? It's yours? No, I... Your mother said she found it in your closet. I don't know. One of the guys must have... Must have what? Look, Dad, it's Where not... Where did you get it? Dad, Answer I... me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. 
Parents who use drugs have children who use drugs. I mean, this basically became a punchline for my generation, even though it's straightforward and it's pretty effectively communicated. And that was just one of the messages from the height of the 1980s Just Say No anti-drug campaign, which was spearheaded by First Lady Nancy Reagan. Uh, This led eventually to another program called D.A.R.E., and both of those campaigns were widely done with entire units in classrooms dedicated to spreading awareness about the dangers of drug abuse. The effort also included some of the more famous episodes of 1980s sitcoms that were popular among kids and teens, especially on NBC. Punky Brewster had a famous one that featured the titular character and her friend Sherry getting tempted with drugs by the popular girls, an episode that ended with, a, with an anti-drug PSA and is probably second only to the Fridge of Death episode. And Different Strokes actually had the first lady visit Arnold to talk about her anti-drug message. Later on, a few, a few years later, uh, Brandon Tartikoff would guest star at the end of an episode of Saved by the Bell that dealt with the temptation of somebody like Johnny Dakota, the actor, uh, filming an anti-drug commercial at Bayside and the kids discovering oh Johnny Dakota liked pot and so you know the whole the whole thing about how that was hypocritical and they got Brandon Tartikoff because he was a friend of Belding's or something. DC Comics put together three drug awareness giveaway comics starring what was their most popular selling superhero at the time the New Teen Titans the first was written by Marv Wolfman with art by George Perez and Dick Giordano. The second was written by Wolfman with art by Ross Andrew and Joe Giella and the third was plotted by Wolfman, scripted by Joey Cavallari, and the art was by Adrian Gonzalez, and inks by Joe Gilla and Ricardo Villagran. So I'm going to review all three at once. Yes. All three. At once. There's no continuing story in them. In fact, all three were sponsored by different companies. But they're similar enough in content that it's going to be easy to do. And my synopsis, by the way, I'm going to be completely lazy here. It, they're taken from the official New Teen Titans Index, which was a series published by, I want to say, Eclipse, uh, because there's a bunch of ads for Eclipse comics in them, or, or on like, the back covers and stuff. Uh, but they were using the name Independence Comics Group, and issue number four covered New Teen Titans number 26 all the way through Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, which is all of the Terra and Judas contract stories as well, and it ends with Donna Troy's wedding. These three issues... Um, in the index are placed between issues 32 and 33 of the series. So here's the synopsis of the first one, which was sponsored by Keebler. The sponsorship, by the way, directly led to a completely new superhero named The Protector being created for the three drug awareness issues. That's because Nabisco had the license to Robin, and since the issue was sponsored by Keebler, they couldn't use the boy Wonder for the comic. And this wasn't discovered actually until after George Perez had drawn this issue. So Dick Giordano had to go back and drew the mask of the protector over the drawings of Robin. So it's sort of Robin, but it's sort of not. And the other major change that's going on is the Starfire's costume in these issues is a little more demure as the metal front is uh, not revealing at all. It actually actually looks pretty cool, especially when it's drawn by Perez. So here's the uh, synopsis of issue number one. Speedy and the new Teen Titans join forces with another young costume hero called the Protector to stop a gang of drug smugglers. In their criminal's warehouse laboratory, they find a drug-addicted youngster who's close to death from an overdose, and they rush him to a hospital. Unfortunately, the youth dies despite their efforts. 
When Raven senses the nearby presence of the deceased boy's drug-using friends, including his sister Anna, the Titans try to help him. But the youngsters refuse to be persuaded, even when Speedy tells the story of his own days as a junkie, as shown in Green Lantern 2nd Series number 85 and 86. Back at the hospital where another teenager, Debbie O'Hara, has been admitted to the detoxification center, her younger brother, brother Teddy gives the Titans a lead to the drug pusher's whereabouts. While Cyborg, Starfire, and the Protector break up one end of the drug connection, and Speedy, Changeling, and Wonder Girl stop the dissemination of drugs in the streets, Anna and her friends, all high on drugs, attempt and disrupt the funeral of Anna's brother. When Anna is reconciled with her parents and Debbie makes a successful recovery, the other youngsters talk it over and enter a hospital program in order to quit their drug habit. The second drug awareness issue is sponsored by the American soft drink industry in cooperation with the President's Drug Awareness Campaign. After the Titans help the Protector round up Another gang of drug smugglers near Blue Valley, the Protector asks Kid Flash to keep an eye on his cousin, Ted Hart, a reformed drug user newly moved to the town. When Ted attends school and begins dating Amy King, a friend of Wally West's, the young superheroes find themselves at a loss to learn the time and place of a large incoming drug shipment. As weeks pass, Ted is tempted into using drugs again by Coral, the girlfriend of Adam, the local pusher, when she convinces him that even Amy is secretly a user. When Amy goes to Wally West to get help for Ted, he contacts the protector as Kid Flash, but even the two superheroes cannot talk Ted and his friend Brian into going straight. Finally, desperate for money to pay for drugs, the two attempt to hold up a grocery store, and Brian is shot by the owner. Ted escapes and winds up on Amy's doorstep near Collapse. The Protector and the Titans, meanwhile, locate the drug drop site by following Adam and Coral. Even as they defeat the criminals, Raven senses Ted's pain from afar and teleports away to help him. Ted and Brian are soon visited in the hospital by their parents, their girlfriends, and the Teen Titans. They both vow to stay off drugs for good. And the third and final drug awareness issue is sponsored by IBM. The Protector and the Teen Titans are guests of a high school anti-drug lecture when a young boy named Jesse, who has been providing drugs to his classmates, stands up and denounces the hero's message as a lie and then runs out of the auditorium. When Changeling and Raven follow him to keep him from hurting himself in his drug-induced frenzy, Raven's soul self gives Jesse a nightmare vision of his older brother, who first introduced him to drug use as a corpse-like figure. Raven tries to use her powers to ease Jesse's pain, but in doing so, she unintentionally allows the drugs to affect her as well. As Starfire flies Raven to a hospital, Jesse realizes for the first time the effect the drugs are having on him and resolves not only to quit, but to help his friends quit as well. The Titans track down Jesse's brother, hoping he will unwittingly lead them to his supplier, which he does. The Titans and the Protector bring the drug dealers to justice, and a repentant Dave joins his brother in swearing off drugs. Now... All three of the drug awareness issues had activities in the back for kids to do. Stuff like quizzes about what you would do in certain situations, how to respond to peer pressure, and how to act responsibly, plus a declaration to sign that you are going to stay drug-free. On the inside cover of all three, there was the following letter from Nancy Reagan. Dear friend, don't let anyone tell you that you can't be a hero. You can, and you are about to learn how. Picture yourself in a battle. In fact, it is one of the most important battles our nation has ever fought. You are right in the center of combat. Sound incredible? It is all part of being a hero. Is this an imaginary battle? Not at all. Many young people are already in it, and they would do anything to be on the winning side. But they've learned about it too late. 
The battle is against drug abuse. Declare that you will stay drug-free, at any cost. You're guaranteed to win, and you'll be a hero to your mother and father, family and friends, but most of all to yourself. There's a lot more to it, and you'll learn about it as you go along. The president feels as strongly as I do about winning this battle. His drug awareness campaign put this material together, and generous corporations paid for it. It was done especially for you. We hope you will give being a hero your very best effort. Sincerely, Nancy Reagan. Overall, these aren't really that bad. The art's gorgeous in the first one. Uh, It's nice and solid in the other two. In all three, Wolfman has a street-level sort of menace as opposed to aliens or a supervillain named like the heroin lord or captain cocaine or something equally ridiculous it's preachy at times the parts where the protector is speechifying about the dangers of drugs come off about three times worse than any of the worst after school specials but this is me looking at it from the eyes of a jaded and cynical 38 year old adult not a 10 year old kid who had been excited to get a comic book at school I remember when my sister came home with the Captain America Goes to War Against Drugs comic and gave it to me because she didn't want it, and I was like, oh, cool, a free comic book, just say no. Some of the scenes, even if they're a little heavy-handed, actually are pretty well done. In the first, there's these intermittent testimonials from kids who are doing drugs and are telling their stories, and I think it's because it's Perez doing the art, but the way it shows a wide diversity in terms of the people talking about their experiences, like... A white girl, a Latino girl, Speedy, an African-American boy, two white boys, is really effective because it assumes a wide audience. And when you have to get a message out to a wide audience, you want that audience to see in its, itself in whatever it's reading. In the second, things get very Scott Bayo in stoned, especially when Ted and Brian resort to literally doing coke off the floor of the bathroom where they've spilled it. But there is something to be said about the idea of popularity and peer pressure when it comes to destructive behavior, at least the way it's portrayed. You can kind of tell that Ted is the kid who is on the outside of the crowd he's trying to fit in with, and since the pink-haired cool chick kind of likes him, he'll go along with it. The third has that whole older brother angle, and the little brother getting swept up in things that are way too big for him, but because it's the cool older brother, the drugs give him some sort of validation. Like the second special scenario, it's a little too after-school special, but it fits its purpose. And look, these aren't collector's item comics. At the most, they're ephemera. But the anti-drug movement of the 1980s has its own place in my generation's nostalgia, so I can't help but look upon these fondly. I'm going to take another break and come back with my next and last comic of the episode. Stick around. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story my star wars story my star wars story my star wars story monthly at mystarwarsstory.com and available in the itunes store
Concerned and uninformed. You think you can't get it? Well, you're wrong. Don't dismiss this. A blacklist the topic. And that ain't gonna stop it. Now, if you go about it right, you just might save your life. Don't be uptight. Come join the fight. We're gonna tell you how you can get it and how you won't. All of the do's and all of the don'ts. I got some news for you, so listen, please. It's not a black, white, a gay disease. Are you ready, Pep? Yeah, I'm set. All right, then. Come on, bet. Let's talk about sex. So if you do come up HIV positive uh-huh. or have AIDS, yeah. we just want you to know what? that there are treatments. That's right. And the earlier the sooner, detected, the better off you'll be. Tell them, please. Ayo, Pep, you get checked yep. every year, G. Now, you don't get AIDS. Forget this. Touches mosquito bites or hugging. Pull seat, telephone. Stop bugging. You get it for sex or a dirty drug needle. Ain't no oral now, people. Women can give it to men and men mostly. To women The facts are simple Right and exact And once you get it There's no turning back for you There ain't a cure So you gotta be sure Protect yourself I don't have sex anymore Mothers might give it To their babies Through the womb Or through birth Don't be an ass And assume AIDS Ain't got no smell or taste It don't care about your race You see a nice kind face You think you're safe I'm sorry That's just not the case There's no debate Conversate with your mate And don't wait Until it's too late don't, don't. Throughout the 1980s, the United States and the rest of the world found itself facing an epidemic of a new disease called AIDS. While it had its genesis years earlier, its spread began in huge numbers throughout various cities on the east and west coasts, mainly New York and San Francisco, and one of the largest populations immediately affected were those cities' gay men. As a result, the disease did not get a lot of widespread attention in the media when it first appeared, and the government response was equally slow. This was due to a number of factors, not the least of which was a stigma that the disease got early on as being a, quote, gay disease, something that fed the feelings of an already homophobic public during the Reagan era. If you're interested in reading about this, I would highly recommend Randy Schultz's book and The Band Played On, which is an incredible, incredibly thorough and heartbreaking look at the first 10 years or so of the AIDS epidemic. By the early 1990s, however, AIDS awareness had grown to the point where there was a full-blown educational effort. Not only was the general public seeing more about the disease and getting more accurate information, but AIDS education was introduced to classrooms, showing up in sex education materials for students as young as the fifth grade. Now, I know my personal experience with sex ed is probably different from others because it does tend to vary from state to state whether or not you got a comprehensive education about sex or whether it was abstinence-only based as well as whether or not you got any AIDS education at all. Or perhaps you learned about AIDS from DC Comics. In the early 1990s, this is probably about 1992, DC Comics ran a series of one-page PSAs where various DC Universe heroes encountered someone with AIDS or talked about AIDS. The column, I Love You But You're Strange, over at Comic Book Resources, did a rundown of them back in 2012. They include Robin talking to Alfred about how everyone's avoiding the HIV-positive kid in school, and they're saying he's going to learn more about AIDS so he can prove it to his peers this isn't a big deal. And Blue Beetle and Booster Gold saying something completely insensitive and getting taken down a peg by fire. The Titans visiting an AIDS ward and Troy a schooling changeling on how you simply can't get AIDS from hanging around with someone who has AIDS. 
and the Flash informing a couple of kids, saying that, no, you don't get AIDS from sharing a straw with someone. And Jon Stewart stopping a mob of people from driving away a gay couple from their town. Like the PSAs of the 1950s, these were all meant for the younger side of the DC Comics audience, which by then was probably in junior high or middle school, and the writers of the PSAs at least had all of the heroes acting in character. The two I think that work the best, or at least they seem like they're scenarios that would actually happen, are fire-scolding dude bros Booster and Beetle, and the two snot-nosed kids with the Flash. Because people actually did make comments these kids make, like, you know, you can drink after me, don't worry, I don't have AIDS or anything. And yes, it may seem strange, but you have a widely uneducated teenage public back then. Hell, I think they're still pretty in the dark when it comes to being educated about sex, but that's my personal opinion. So a campaign that is called, You May Think It's Not Your Problem, Think Again, is pretty spot on. Getting a little more in-depth and serious would be the Vertigo entry in DC's AIDS awareness campaign, an eight-page comic called Death Talks About Life, featuring Death of the Endless, and written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Dave McKean. The comic is basically a lesson from death about protecting yourself from HIV and AIDS, and is presented as a straightforward lecture. She begins by telling the audience that there are many, there may be some offensive things in the comic, so if anyone gets offended, they simply shouldn't read it. She then goes through all of the basic facts about AIDS, what it is, what it does to your body, how you can get it, how you can't get it, and how you can't tell someone has it just by looking at them. It's followed by a cameo from John Constantine, who is incredibly embarrassed as he holds out a banana so she can demonstrate how to put a condom on an erect penis. She then wraps up by giving the audience advice on being safe and aware of what you're doing when you have sex. Like I said, it's only eight pages, and if you don't count the warning that makes up the cover and the back page, which I believe contains some references if you wanted more information, it's only six pages. Gaiman and McKean get a lot done in those six pages, and while I realize it's a lecture, it feels less like your parents or your teacher talking at you and more like your older sister or cousin or friend giving you the straight facts. There's a frankness about it that I think is refreshing because at the time I first read this, which was when it first came out back in about 1993 or so, I was still young enough to keep getting the heavily packaged metaphors and, quote, understandable PSAs and other productions about AIDS. I mean, I'm grateful for my education, but at the same time, some of the stuff they used was really corny. And honestly, I think the reason I didn't make fun of the AIDS awareness stuff on the level that I made fun of the anti-drug stuff was that I was slightly more mature at the time, and well, between this and what you see on MTV, there was a seriousness about this that it was very early 90s, and, and was it was full of the earnestness and serious of the early 90s, and it, you couldn't really make fun of it. Not that drug addiction isn't serious, but the message I always got regarding AIDS was all about protecting yourself and being responsible and safe instead of just like, just say no. And, again, this is my own opinion here, but if you treat kids, especially teenagers, like they're capable of making responsible decisions, but you guide them with regarding to making those responsible decisions, they might take it a little more seriously by then, instead of you just kind of coming down on them and saying, don't do this. But what do I know, right? Anyway... I hope you enjoyed this very quick look at some of the PSA comics DC has produced over the decades. 
I have a total of four more episodes left in this series, and that is going to ble- means it's going to bleed over into 2016, early 2016. However, based on what I have planned, it's going to be worth it if I can get my act together and get things out on a consistent basis. So we'll see what happens. But please come back for the last episode of 2015, which will be in about a week or so, and it will be appropriately about Christmas comics. So thanks for listening, and take care. I want to dress, I won't give in I'm gonna call the shots in my life And I'm gonna win Don't press me, don't press me Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics A podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics And since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics.